0: This is the Green
1: Steel Challenge. Hi, I'm Astrid Korf and this is the Green Steel Challenge. My father, Willy Korf, revolutionized the steel industry in the late 60s with his mini-mills and his new energy-saving technologies. My mission today is to help make steel production greener. But what is green steel? How can we make it? And how can we speed up the progress? In this podcast, we will challenge the steel industry to get specific about how to get to zero-carbon steel. We will meet global industry leaders to push the conversation and the innovation forward. Joining me on this journey are two of the keenest observers in the space, Dr. Mike Walsh and James Moss. Today, I would like to welcome our special guest joining us from Charlotte, North Carolina in the US, Stephen Montague, CEO of Meat
2: How are you? Thanks for that, Astrid. First question for Stephen is a, a general opener. What is Midrex uh, Corporation and how does it connect
3: and relate to uh, Willie Corff? Midrex is a process technology company. We were established in 1974. Actually, we were bought by Willie Corff. Midland Ross at the time sold sold the Midrex technology to Willie Corff. And he really launched the technology. He grew it. And Midrex as a process is the world's leader in direct reduced iron. We produce uh, about 80% of the low CO2 iron in the world today comes from the Midrex process.
2: How would you describe that technology and how is it so fundamentally different uh, to the more conventional blast furnace process which uh, a lot of people will be uh, uh, more familiar with?
3: The DRI process is really Um, much more like a chemical plant than it is uh, a traditional uh, steelmaking plant. We don't melt the iron in the direct reduction process. We make hydrogen, we make some CO, carbon monoxide, and these are the reductants that turn the rust into iron without melting the iron. Uh, The products that come from the reduction of iron the removal of the rust, are water and CO2. Um, of course, the more hydrogen we used, the less CO2 that we make. Is the technology
0: now pretty much the same as it was in 74, or is it much more refined?
3: I would say that our pioneers, they really got it right. They built a solid foundation with the fundamentals of the process. From the process point of view, it's, it's quite the same. Now, there's been massive uh, enhancements to to this, and and from that foundation, we were really able to build up from there. For example, I think the early plants were were I don't know fifty thousand tons or seventy five thousand tons, and today we're building plants that are two and a half million tons each. No one ever imagined using for for example uh, hot DRI back back in the early days, and now almost all the the DRI we produce is. Hot and either compacted into HBR used to take advantage of the, the sensible heat in the in the adjacent melters. So these kind of changes along with uh, other energy sources, uh, increasing use of hydrogen or uh, in some cases coke oven gas or, or uh, other energy sources that have been used to supplement the, the original foundation of the process.
0: DRI can be used in multiple different forms in the pellets and the the hot briquetted
3: iron Uh, are are there other forms that can be used in? I would say the three primary forms that people uh, use DRI is cold DRI Mm -hmm. that's the way things began and um, the majority of the DRI that's produced because of you know the, the early plants were that way is still in that form in 1984 was the the start of HBI, hot briquetted iron. It's a pillow-shaped, roughly 100 cc briquette. It's very dense. It's incredibly well-suited for for ocean transport. In the old days, everyone talked about reactivity around that. I would say now it's a lot more about yield. It's nice to have something to ship from place to place you can beat around and not make a lot of fines and lose you know lose a lot of yield and then uh, the third form is hot DRI and just as I said it's uh, it's, it's really straightforward why, why uh, make a DRI with high temperatures just to cool it down only to heat it back up in an adjacent furnace if you can keep it hot and use it hot then uh, there's less energy that's going to be consumed and less CO2 that'll be emitted because of that.
2: So my understanding is, uh, in my lifetime uh, in the steel industry, which is now somewhat considerable, uh, over 25 years, DRI started off uh, with Willy Korf in uh, uh, Hamburg with the first DRI plant, and until the 2010s, it. It was always there, and it always kind of grew, but all of a sudden, it became a very region-specific, dependent on those raw materials, namely coal for for India, Uh, but more interestingly, uh, natural gas in Middle East uh, and North Africa. Now, all of a sudden, the word hydrogen uh, popped up uh, into everybody's vernacular, and it was Midrex and DRI that first connected hydrogen uh, to steelmaking, certainly for me. So, in this journey from uh, sort of raw material based, different alternative, low cost technologies, when did green environmentalism suddenly land on your agenda? And when exactly did your phone start
3: ringing off the hook? I'd say about five to seven years ago, the Europeans, uh, as you say, started uh, phoning. And, and I mean, we're a U.S.-based company, not a prototypical uh, U.S. company by any stretch because almost all of our work is international. But clearly, the Europeans uh, were leading the charge and are still leading the charge towards decarbonization. And they began really pushing for answers because they they had a higher sense of pressure of what was coming. And, uh, and it started that way. So... Um, you know, I'd love to say that that from the very beginning, Midrex or even or even uh, Willie Korf had the great insight around decarbonization from the beginning. I'm not sure that was really the case. No. The reality, though, is that, um, well, two realities. One is that not all DRI is low CO2. You've, you've just mentioned it. There was, uh, in 2022, there was about 127 million tons of DRI produced. That's about seven million tons over the previous year, but about uh, about thirty million tons or so is coming from the rotary hearth furnace, a very different technology, and that is not low CO two, and and the balance is the balance comes from natural gas. That was the basis fundamental um, fundamental energy source for the process, and compared to uh, any kind of coal based. Um, alternative for making iron be it glass furnace or or even a rotary kiln there's a quite a bit of co2 savings from that so this natural gas based process generates a sin gas that has anywhere from 55 to uh let's say 80 percent hydrogen already in the syngas gas so we have that type of experience now what's it take to go from there to 100 and, uh, and what energy sources do we use to,
2: to make it happen? Uh, exactly. And I, I think it's that uh, you've got that complete uh, spectrum of naught to 100% of hydrogen to play with, which I think has fortunately uh, allowed the concept to have some kind of feasibility.
0: Absolutely. The, the data also bears out that kind of time frame in terms of the liftoff um, uh, of the, the DRI numbers. Um, was it Paris? Was the Paris Agreement a contributing factor to this that suddenly people were casting around? I mean, it was not like it was a secret technology, um, but all of a sudden it was a
3: solution that had found its problem. Actually, if we really tried to correlate the, the annual production, let's say, of DRI versus this... Uh, Um, decarbonization push worldwide particular Europe but worldwide uh, I'm not so sure the correlation would be that strong to five years or seven years or 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 this way Um, you know there are periods where our steel industry is notoriously cyclical and and there are periods where production is uh, is uh, turned down and in those periods DRI plants are are not immune to that either so there are times when when the capacity um was was uh not at a high utilization mark i think if we would go back to um probably yeah maybe 5 to 7 years ago we would see this this big increase i mean maybe we were at at uh, you know 70 to 90 million tons in the last You know, maybe seven to 10 years ago in that range. And, uh, but some of that, a good bit of that is just a lot more capacity utilization. People want DRI more. And then the rest is growth, but not just growth in traditional markets. Um, Surprisingly, the rotary key on which had declined for many years began to to increase. It had gotten down to about maybe 17% of the overall DRI market. Now it's, you know, 25% percent plus. Um, Iran, for example, is a major producer of DRI, and they uh, they built a, a tremendous number of plants, even though uh, sanctions are in place and companies like Midrec can't be a part of that. Yeah. 2017, 2018, uh, the phone
2: started ringing a lot uh, in Europe, and people are now talking about uh, I mean, Even by twenty thirty or thirty five, we're talking about thirty five million tons uh, of DRI requirement. So, I mean, h- how are you addressing that uh, strategically and, and tactically? You're going to provide the lion's share of that DRI capability. Uh, uh, is this a m- seismic shift in the way that your organisation works?
3: Yeah, it really is. There's, uh, there's, I would say, there's two. Huge shifts. One is uh, from a capacity point of view. If you look historically at the demand in the in the market, I historically the maybe one to two DR plants per year would be a would you know be kind of a number to look at. And when we look out, say twenty thirty, this kind of time frame. We can imagine that uh, that this is going to go to say three or four plants per year. So let's just say that from a capacity point of view, we we might be seeing a triple, a scaling of about three times. At the same time, it's it's a it's a push for new technology. So there's there's two requirements: one that we'd be able to do a lot more volume-wise, and the other that we have new technologies to bring to the table to meet the demands these phone calls that we talk about that are rolling in, that um, it's not for the same old, same old. DRI sounds great. We can build a natural gas-based DRI plant. We know we can save about half of the CO2 compared to the traditional steel-making blast furnace, but nobody's gonna sp- put the money into into that even unless they know they can get fully to hydrogen one day. Yep. Or, and in some cases, even start with hydrogen. And that is, uh, you know, that's what pushes new technology.
0: Is are we at scale now? Is it is two and two and a half, three million tons, sort of terminal scale for for a unit?
3: I, I I wouldn't say it's terminal, but I would say it is at scale. For a long time, the knock on DRI was that, you know, it's it is it is a, a an industrial plant that's highly dependent on economy of scale. Small plants uh, will suffer from from economy of scale, so. You know, when people were building blast furnaces, 3 million tons, 6 million tons, and they were looking at DRI plants producing you know, three-quarters of a million ton or 1 million tons, yeah, that's an issue. But today, almost I think everything that we propose is 2 million tons plus, and we've, we're, we're working on our third, constructing our third 2.5 million ton a year plant, and, and we're ready to go for three. So I think, uh, I think we've, we've done a good job. Not, and not just mid in the industry of pushing that up. Is there a multiple, probably, specific constraints in your ability
2: to go from two to three to four uh, modules per year, or is it just the fact that your company's doubling size with all the inherent issues that arises, or are there particular materials or technologies or processes uh, that will be particularly difficult to uh, help
3: you achieve that capacity? There are. I think... Uh, uh, traditionally uh, DRI is made in a in a shaft furnace and you know a, ver- a vertical shaft where you have uh, uh it filled with uh generally for simplicity let's call it iron oxide pellets and you have a counter flow of of reducing gases that that flow as these flow upwards as these uh pellets descend by gravity and you can imagine that as you scale it's not necessarily uh you know, some photographic scaling of this as you scale the the relationships between the the flows and diameters especially of these uh of these types of equipment um start to change not only the gas flows but also the the mass flows of the material the 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 solids and if you know you have to have you have to have uniform contact of of gases and solids to have uh, uh Let's say a, a product that's produced with a uh, with, uh, consistent quality. So these are the kind of things that would, that, that's our job. That's what we take these things in consideration as we grow.
0: Well, you kind of got put in the crosshairs now. I mean, as as you say, as the size of the size of the units have, has increased, it, DRI is no longer an ancillary raw material. It's it's the business. It's the core of the business. And in that respect, you're putting pressure. Your expansions putting pressure on the iron ore industry and its ability to to uh, generate the pellets that are required for the process. Is that something that you work with the ore producers on? And is is trying to adapt the process for uh, more available
3: ore qualities we do as a matter of fact when you know we, when we look at the trends to your point when we look at the trends moving forward and we think about the growth of dri not just till say 2030 but beyond there's going to be a lot more pressure on uh on things like oxide pellets and not just pellets per se but you know the world talks about uh blast furnace pellets, and they use another term they call DR pellets, direct reduction pellets. I really don't like that. Because <laughs> it's the, a pricing thing, Steve. Yeah. Well, it, it's actually not the DR plant. Yeah. If, if we were to be really uh, specific about this, it should be something like an EAF pellet because, <laughs> yeah. because, because the reality is the DR plant has – I don't want to pretend it's easy, but the DR plant has an ability to run – you know a, a higher Fe pellet, like it traditionally does. That's usually about 67% Fe, that's suited very well for an EAF. But when you go down to about a you know 65 or 64 Fe pellets, DR plants don't run with those. They can, and some do, but traditionally they don't. And the reason is because the EAF does kind of a poor poor job as you uh, as you go to a, to a lower fe pellet of uh of of managing that those higher slag volumes so the the point is we see those things coming right and and uh the overall amount of pellets is one thing but having enough high grade let's say 67 fe pellet to feed all the new capacity is going to be a real challenge so we're already and have been working with our customers and many of our plants to produce not not only DRI with uh, even much lower FE, like the sixty four sixty five I mentioned, but even further downstream for a new type of melter that's better suited to deal with that. Now, that's not something today that MidRex provides, but but it's something that we work along with industry and other suppliers to help create. This, uh, if I might, um, there's a new project that um, that Midrex is a part of, along with a partner in SMS, Paul Verth, uh, for Thyssen and Crook. And, and this project for Thyssen is is based this way. It's based on the, the idea of, of long-term having a lower FE pellet to go to the DR plant that'll be there in Duisburg, and it's feeding two of these new smelters for, uh, for that reason. So they've already got the vision and taken uh, the initiative to move in that direction. Is it fair to say that uh, in the near term, uh, when steel
2: mills are running their cost of uh, materials, uh, you say, yes, we want FE to be 67% plus, we want silicon and aluminum to be 3% or lower. Uh, Given that we have a new uh, price constraint now, namely carbon trading at 100 euros a ton right now. I mean, right now, yes, you don't want to be running at 66% FE, but it could be economically it might not be technically the best way but we could bring these things down fe or the Gange up uh in order to uh, make lower uh, co2 steel even though technically it's not the best thing but economically now
3: in the in the green environment it's a it's a different way of doing things it's uh, it's the way also that we look at it the iron ore guys are pretty clever you know and uh, markets are those markets are relatively open and free. And, you know, it's not a it's not a it's not guesswork how they come up with the with the maybe the relative price differences between things like uh, 67 or 64 percent pellets. You know, I mean, they understand value and use of of what it takes. It, there's no free lunch. You know, if, if you if you either have to clean up this stuff on the front side through beneficiation, et cetera, or you clean it up on the backside with, uh, you know, with with the uh, with the energy and some melter, and the price differential uh, between these materials, I think is uh, it's intelligent. They they understand people understand these differences. But I but I'll use your your you know your question your point to introduce maybe you know, um, some other things to think about there are other alternatives that people are exploring today to tackle the same kind of issues. So, you know, everything doesn't have to look like a pellet. That's the way it looks today. It might be higher, low F E, but, but the beautiful thing about decarbonization is the way it's pushing us all these, these phone calls that we talked about to, to really uh, stretch ourselves and think differently. So there's a resurgent in looking at fluidized bed technology, for example, there's uh, um, people are talking about some of the iron ore companies, especially, are talking about cold briquetting of oxide now instead of pelletizing. It doesn't necessarily solve the problem of beneficiation, but uh, but you know it's a, a lower CO2 approach to uh, to making an agglomerate that could be suited uh, for a DR plant, perhaps certainly even a blast furnace, and uh, and save. Uh, CO2 emissions because we're not t- trying to fire or indurate that material. There's no magic bullet. There's not no. going to be one solution that fits everything. And, and It's just examples of how the world's starting really to adapt mm. to the challenges that we face.
0: I mean, you mentioned the, the the different pricing of the iron ore materials, and many of the new DRI plants are integrated, obviously, into existing steel plants. And there was always this question. I remember at some point in the last ten years, maybe multiple points of the last ten years in the U.S., there would be half a dozen to a dozen DRI projects being discussed. Many of them intending to be merchant projects, um, and the and the numbers never really worked right because. DRI was priced essentially against scrap or against pig iron or uh, in-house hot metal or whatever it was. Is there a point at which these various products separate or the DRI establishes uh, a pricing level of its own or are they, as we say, an iron unit is an iron unit is an iron unit and they the market will price them
3: similarly? I think there is a point. And uh, I, I think that I can't tell you exactly when that point is, but but I can uh talk for a couple of minutes about the about the driving forces. Yeah. Because I think I think nope, you know, we sell DR plants, but but I'm not um, I'm not naive. No one's gonna use DRI just because they, you know, just want to. Uh, they use DRI because they're trying to solve a problem. And and frankly, if the world uh could use if there if there was enough scrap. Then, then the whole world can skip the iron-making step completely. We can use scrap, and we can save a whole lot of CO2 because you know, most of the CO2 is coming from making iron. And so that's just the reality. But there's not enough scrap. And there's going to be, uh, for the reasons I just mentioned, as the world tries to decarbonize, uh, everyone's going to want more scrap. And, and you can't make to high quality steel products with just scrap alone. And so the world pushes for lower CO2, the world pushes for lighter and stronger steels, which means higher quality, and you can't get there with scrap alone. There's not enough of it. So we've got to have an alternative. We've got to have a supplemental iron. And, it, and so far as I know, DRI is uh, it represents the best alternative in the world today or making a low CO2 iron. Yep. and so those are the those are the driving forces. And it doesn't matter for me whether someone's in the U.S. or or where they are. If they're going to make if they're going to make steel in an electric furnace, and they're going to make a high quality steel, they're going to need a DRI or an HBI. And 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 now one other driving force about about this relative difference in these materials and pricing. So people need a supplemental iron. And okay, it could be DRI, HBI, but it could also be pig iron. What the market does not take into consideration today in this relative pricing is the uh, is the inherent difference in CO2 between pig iron and DRI. Mm-hmm. And, and I would even say uh, bluntly that with respect to rotary kiln DRI, it's even worse. I mean the emissions of those plants are even higher than yeah. a blast furnace and it's you know we, we really do ourselves no favor by considering that frankly as as DRI. We need to make a distinction between high and low CO2 DRI. So if we just use ballpark numbers the way we were doing before, if we just say there's a ton of CO2 difference between uh, let's say a pig iron and, a, and a, an HBI, you know, what's the world look like one day when we price that ton of CO2 difference yeah. in, in, in the mix? I mean inherently or historically, HBI you know trades at a discount to, to pig and it should because it, it you know it has the gain, it takes more work to, to, to make it into steel. but but that completely rolls it the other way. $100 dollars or 100 euro or, or more will completely change that yeah. one day. I think every DRI plant that's been commissioned
2: uh, in Europe is with a existing incumbent steel plant, such as ThyssenKrupp that you've just mentioned, uh, or one or two uh, new players, H2 Green Steel, which is another one of your clients. But all these DRI plants are integrated. Do you see it in Europe any uh, independent merchant DRI, or is DRI very much going to be with the uh, iron and steel plants?
3: I really appreciate this question and it's uh it's something I think about actually a lot. It's really the question of where's the best place to make iron. If the world's missing something today around this whole march towards decarbonization, I think it may be that question. Where where really is the the right place to make iron and 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 being brutally honest with ourselves about that. So I totally understand, and I get the tradition of iron making. i understand I understand the the compelling reasons socially and otherwise to want to make transitions of of where there are blast furnaces day to today to to a new a new type of iron making. at the same time, when i when I'm really honest with with myself and I ask the right questions, where are the right places to make iron? If you look at, if I look at Europe to be, to be blunt again, uh, the, the iron ore is not there. They're importers of iron ore. The energy is relatively expensive compared to many other places of the world. And so does the world in the future really look like a lot of the existing steel mills moving one step upstream to put their own little iron making plant that's low CO2 or does the world in the future look more like uh, a place where where there are iron making hubs? Yeah. You know, the world imports a lot of iron ore from a few places today. Why can't the world import iron from a few places in the future? Yeah.
2: As a consultant working on, I can't think how many. Slab projects in Brazil. I remember when all steel was going to be made in Brazil back in the day, uh, uh, and look at that now. That, that, that's changed. But I totally agree with you. I, I think the exception within Europe is uh, I think all steel should be basically made in Sweden. Uh, it does have the <laughs> has the hydro uh, and it has the iron ore. A, a, a lot of iron ore. Uh, so when you're talking about Northern Europe, is that the right place to make it? Yeah, I totally agree.
0: But you've raised the issue of the future, Stephen. How do you see um, DRI production expanding? How hard is it to to gather the resources uh, for for you to sustain your role in this, whether it's people or capital, uh, in the process?
3: I'll take a near term view. Yeah, it's it's you know when I think 2050, things get really cloudy for sure. We have our we have our image there, and and we don't take steps towards say 2030, which is a near term view, without it being consistent with what we imagine for 2050. But but 2030 is something we can get our you know really really feel we can touch, and why? Because you know it takes it takes say three years to to build a DR plant, I don't know 30 months maybe, but but um it means that if something's not already contracted today, anything that's contracted today, we're still talking almost 27 before uh-huh. before it comes out. So, you know, this is manageable. We can see halfway there at least. And uh, so by 2030, we really see maybe about 50 million tons of, of additional capacity coming online. Might be 40, 50 million tons. I don't think a lot of that's gonna come from uh, increased capacity utilization. I think the plants are running pretty hard now. So I don't, you know, at least our assumptions, I don't think they're going to build a lot more rotary kilns uh, in India where most of them are. But uh, so I I think there's a, I think there's a, a really a bright future for DRI. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of plants to, to build. Now, how do we make that happen? If I look, as, you know, there's top-down reasons why we see those numbers, but there's also bottom-up reasons where we can look at the pipeline. There's a lot of projects that are in the, you know, kind of in the early stages of the project development pipeline. There's not as many that are that are coming out. They're trickling out the other end in a way that helps us, frankly, manage the the increased workload. the uh, The midrex approach to this is really. Uh, We don't tackle this by ourselves. We never have. We've always relied upon uh, strong partnerships. So MidRex is owned by Kobe Steel. Kobe Steel also helps MidRex build some plants occasionally. There's two other players that help us build plants that that actually do a lot more uh, in recent times for plant building with us than Kobe. And those are Prime Metals and, and SMS Paul Verth. And so we are able really to to amplify what we do and in, in our uh capacity and even towards new technologies with these type of partners than just by acting alone, at the same time for sure we're trying to grow and it's hard you know it's not just about getting any people it's about getting the right people and getting the right experiences uh, but i think those are those are problems that we're that we're addressing really well and and the uh the the number of projects in the pipeline are daunting yep. but the pace at which they're really coming out the end and the real timeline it's not it's not a uh, it's not overwhelming at the moment
2: well you you mentioned 50 million tons uh, growth by uh, 2030 which is a number I can completely uh... Uh, be relaxed with. Uh, most of that will be uh, in Europe. <laughs> we talk about these uh, legendary phone calls you're you're getting. Where are the non-European phone calls starting to come through from? Is it, is it Korea, Japan, China, uh, India? Where, where do you think is the uh, the region that hasn't got the immediate pressure of the carbon tax like uh, Europe? Which regions are you seeing
3: following on as closely to Europe? Appreciate the question also, because it comes back to this notion of Nobody's going to build a DR plant today. They're a large investment. Nobody's going to build a large one today without an image of how they're going to have a path to really a green iron in the future, which means they have to have some way to imagine they're going to have an energy profile to uh, to get to hydrogen in the future. So that starts to narrow where people begin to look at building plants. And and I would say uh, the USA is a, is a place where uh-huh. people can imagine that happening, the uh, and and fueled uh, recently by the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, yeah. some, some huge push to that, which I'm happy to talk about later. The uh, uh, the Middle East, I think the Middle East has historically been a nice place to make to make DRI. They uh, they obviously have uh, natural gas today. It's not we won't call that the path to green iron, but it is a greener approach to making greener uh, to making a lower CO2 iron today than what what we have with the blast furnace with the prospect of having hydrogen to those plants for the future. So so Middle East, North Africa, uh, certainly there and uh, renewed, I would say, you know, some renewed interest in in Southeast Asia. Not, not necessarily China from, uh, from a green point of view, but uh, maybe not in the near term as I described it, but longer term, you know I, I really would like to see uh, like to see some DR plants in Australia. Yeah I mean we can put we can put some things together there with the iron ore. It seems like a natural place where one would want to imagine this this uh, image that I painted about a D, you know, uh, an iron making hub. But let's
0: pick up on the that the IRA issue now. I mean, what what difference do you think that makes a to what happens in the U.S. and how that positions the U.S. relative to other parts of the world?
3: I think I think the U.S. is is a good place for making DRI. Why? If if you look at particularly like Gulf Coast U.S., there's uh you know the the ports are there to bring the iron ore in. The iron ore we have in the U.S. is also great for making DRI, but it's 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 in a, a dr a U.S. is pretty big place, and and trying to get trying to get that iron ore logistically from you know from the Midwest, you know, out where it's it's exportable year round is a bit tough. That's one of the reasons why you don't see iron ore. It's brought internationally into that area, and you don't really see much iron ore from that area that's that's sold internationally. It's kind of like its own little island in the middle of the U.S. Mm. But but you know Gulf Coast is special. You, you, we've got uh, we've got uh, uh, natural gas that's really cheap. We have prospects for uh, CO2 sequestration. There's a uh, you know longer term. Many people I speak with believe in the ability for for that region to have, let's say, affordable hydrogen, and and so so the minerals are there. I can imagine exporting iron ore, say, from Brazil or even some places in Canada to the Gulf Coast, making making DRI. Questions market, what to do with it, and and uh, the the folks in the U.S. they have. Um, they certainly have a need for some DRI. Maybe it's increasing. You know, uh, Russia's uh, not really a, a, an alternative for, for U.S. steelmakers as an as a considering them as exporters of HBI today. So, so some of the fundamentals are there, but just not been able. You alluded to, to it earlier when when the. When the price of natural gas in the U.S. really became cheap, everyone expected a lot of plants, and it just didn't happen. And I think it was a demand question. It was really, really more of the fundamentals are there, but the demand wasn't. Well, what about today? I guess it was May. I was at a conference in the U.S., and I listened to ArcelorMittal say this. They said there was 16 million tons of, of capacity uh, being built in the U.S. today, 85 percent of which is flat. Now, now, 16 million. None of that's going to really be blast furnace. So it's all EAF, and 85% of it is flat. And the, the, you know, scrap is. We talked about it a bit. The U.S. has scrap. We export maybe uh, 15 to 20 million tons of obsolete scrap, according to to this uh, gentleman at ArcelorMittal. But he he pointed out that we uh, that we import about 2 million tons of prime scrap and we import 6 million tons of pig iron and we import about almost 2 million tons of dri and so that's today Uh and so now this new capacity that's coming online maybe the market's there now and and i would go a step further to say that um i'd really like to see some you some us steelmakers imagine a market that may not be in their own backyard Mm-hmm. I would, I could, I could make an argument that perhaps the highest value you could get for a for a a green uh, DRI or HBI would not be in the U.S. at all. Perhaps yeah. I think uh, I think the Europeans would be really keen to have that, and maybe they're the ones that'll come and and uh, and take advantage of these fundamentals on places like the Gulf Coast and make it happen. The RA is a huge part of that, though. Yep. Yeah. I mean, just yeah, just imagine the if if the if the European ETS and CBAM are like the stick approach to make things happen, maybe the IRA for the U.S. is a little more like the carrot. Absolutely, yeah, great energy. And, and um, I'm not you know I'm not sold on on one being better than the other. They're just very different approaches. But you know, for the person who wants for the company who has the vision for green for let's say green HBI, yeah, they can come to the U S or, or set up shop on the Gulf coast and that they, they can use natural gas. They can make a green HBI. They can sequester CO2 and, in, in our government through the IRA has about an $85 per ton of CO2 tax credit for 10 years. Hmm. And if, uh, if, if they have a vision to use hydrogen, then, uh, then for, um, those who are producing hydrogen for these type of plants, they'll receive uh, up to a three dollar per kilogram uh, sub uh, tax credit for hydrogen again for ten years. Mm-hmm. And then there's grant money through our Department of Energy and so forth available for this. So, uh, I think things are changing in the U.S. I think I think I think it's very recent. Uh, a year ago, it was just starting. The legislation passed, I think, last August, and and I've seen the activity level increase. Frankly, the, the the number of plants has gone from something small. It's it's probably the the activity level's probably gone up by a factor of five in the last year, just for the U.S. Okay, so you're starting to get a lot more local phone calls, at least. exchange change.
0: <laughs> I mean, it, it, uh, you mentioned it earlier as we sort of draw to a close, but the the uh, the hydrogen issue is kind of key to this that um you know people are not investing in places where you can't see a path to uh uh, economically produced hydrogen from what you've seen and the conversations that you've had how confident are you that we will get to economic hydrogen sometime in the next 20 years
3: well it calls into question what's economical yeah and (laughs) and uh you know a lot of things become economical if we believe it's going to be something that jeopardizes human life doesn't it yeah so if i just look at what people seem to be reasonably ready to pay for today then i would say that you know i'd love to see a situation where where we can imagine getting hydrogen at 3 4 dollars a kilogram if uh if we if we can see that then we should be able to find our way and i and i think today with with an h2 i'm sorry H, yeah h2 green steel is kind of showing us some of this you know at least in europe there are there are people who are ready to pay a premium for a green iron green steel because you know they can they can uh, they can pass that along the, the the there's a market for that and frankly i think there's a bigger market for that today and and demand there's a demand where people are ready to pay premiums for that product today and there's not a supply for it yeah i think h2 green steel the only guys out there who are going to really make this at uh at, at a we're talking two million tons a year this isn't a toy yeah <laughs> so yeah if we had 10 million tons of that i think we could sell it all today it's just not there so we're, we're really limited by the the amount of hydrogen we're limited by the amount of renewables and the cost of those things a day for the demand that we even have. Yeah. Is there anything yeah, we didn't
0: anything. ask you, Stephen, that you yeah, yeah. you'd like to emphasize to, to the audience?
3: I really would like to come back to uh, to the connection with Korf. I think Willie Korf was was a man way before his time. And he he saw things like uh, like the movement to the mini mill. He saw things like DRI before even the people who were developing the process could imagine the market the way he saw it. And I know that Midrex really would not be Midrex if we hadn't have hadn't have been acquired by Willie Korf. He was the guy who took this from you know small scale one, one couple of little pilot plants in Portland, Oregon. He took this technology and uh and he he believed in it he equipped the people to make it go and and we had a flurry of plants in those early days and that it, it were those opportunities was those opportunities and those challenges that really kicked the process off so midrex again is just not midrex without without willie corf he made it happen he leaves a big void in our industry today i'm 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 anxious to see he'll be the next generation to take us into uh into the future towards decarbonization, the way the way he brought in the meaty meals and DRI.
0: I really appreciate your time, Stephen. And I hope we run into each other in the States at
3: some point. That'd be great. If you ever get to North Carolina, look us up. Uh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Thank you so much for this very interesting discussion. And please join us in our next episode, where we will welcome from the US, David Stickler, CEO of Hybar.